It's December 10th, 1994, and About a Girl Live by Nirvana is number one on the Billboard Modern Rock Chart. Hello and welcome to Tell Me All Your Thoughts on Pod. I'm Trav. I'm Quillen. I'm Alec. And this is a podcast where we talk about every song that reached number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart in the 90s, beginning with Kurt Cobain's death in April 1994. Today we'll be talking about uh, the version of Nirvana's About a Girl that was released on the MTV Unplugged album. About a Girl spent only one week at number one, but it was Nirvana's fourth appearance at the top of the chart. Here's a clip. so were any of you surprised that nirvana didn't rise up to the back uh back to the top of the charts when kurt cobain died in april eight months ago in retrospect yeah in retrospect yeah i think i'm a little surprised by that yeah i don't i don't i don't know how else how how would they have i mean like oh uh, doesn't this uh, this is a thing that happens right yeah, I guess yeah, a little true. postmortem bump on the charts. Mm-hmm. Good point. Well, I guess one thing that that might explain this is that All Apologies was still at number seventeen on the charts at this time. Um, it had never left the chart, and it had just been released in January. So, I mean, the week that Kurt Cobain died, All Apologies was still on pretty high on the charts on the modern rock chart and it was an appropriate song right i mean how what what better song are you going to play in memory of kurt cobain than uh than all apologies yeah well either way the unplugged album ended up providing sort of a victory lap for nirvana Mm -hmm. and uh i think a fitting goodbye uh how do you all feel about about a girl in general i love it yeah it's really Uh, good it's awesome it's an awesome song um yeah, I I mean the the original version on Bleach is good. Uh but I I especially love this version of it. Uh I mean it just sounds so much like the Beatles. It's insane. It's so good. Yeah, um, I'm totally with you. Yeah. It's just a really so much uh so many of the songs pl- uh in this performance are just so wonderfully done, but yeah. Uh it's just such a great version. Nirvana has four number one songs on the modern rock chart, but they have not really spent very much time on top of the chart. Um, I don't know if you cheated and looked ahead, but can you guess what their four number one songs are and which song had the longest run? I didn't cheat, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that Heart Shaped Box was one of them. <laughs> A uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Smells like Teen Spirit. Yes. So we're waiting for one more. Um, I would guess maybe in Bloom. Hmm. Nope. 
come as you are? Nope. Mm. All apologies. It's all apologies. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was kind of surprised to see what limited chart success, uh, at least on the modern rock chart, uh, uh, Nevermind had. Teen Spirit was number one for only one week. Heart-shaped box was on top of the charts for three weeks. All apologies for two weeks, and about a girl uh, topped the charts for one week. Come as you are uh, peaked at number three. Lithium peaked at number sixteen, and this seems so unlikely to me. But in bloom does not appear to have appeared on the modern rock chart. Yeah, that's surprising. And I do think, you know, I, I would be kind of curious. I don't know exactly when it came out. I know it was, in, you know, whatever, late 91 um, that Nevermind came out. But from my understanding of it, it didn't really like hit until months later. Yeah. Um, it took a, it was a long, slow build for it to really like have the impact that it ultimately had. And well, I think one of the things that this album is known for is the fact that Smells Like Teen Spirit charted on the pop chart. And I don't remember at what number, but that was an indication of the strength of the grunge crossover. That, that Smells Like Teen Spirit was a top 40 hit, which seems unusual, but that was the deal. Wow. So Heart Shaped Box is the longest running number one uh, modern rock hit from Nirvana. And only you said only at three weeks, right? Three weeks, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it's not a in in terms of the myth of Nirvana, it doesn't the stats don't necessarily uh, add up. Mm-hmm. What, what's your relationship with Nirvana in general? They're great. Um, I feel like I should consider them, uh, you know, an all time great band, an all time favorite band. Um, I I didn't care for them a ton as a kid. Um, I like to come as you are and all apologies when I was in elementary school. Um, but yeah, I, uh, when, when listening to the unplugged album, I really feel like they should be like an all time favorite band for me. Um, just melodically incredible, um, really smart songwriting, simple. Um, but, but I, I don't know. They, they just aren't like, they just, when I think of my all-time favorite bands and my all-time favorite albums, they just aren't there for me. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I I think they're incredible, and I should give them more credit than I than I do. Yeah, I think um, they were exciting to me when I was a kid, but um, I didn't fully understand them until I was much older. Um, I didn't Same, understand. Yeah the music and um and you know just the appeal altogether um and yeah it, it took getting older to really kind of fully appreciate what they were doing um and yeah they're just they're they're great i don't the one thing i guess i could say about them is i i don't feel like a a deep personal connection with them I feel like, you know, like some people do, I, I, I think that there are some, I assume they're some people's favorite band Mm -hmm. and, um, I just don't feel that sense of intimacy with their songs and music, um, to, to be at that level. So, um, yeah, I just sort of appreciate pretty much everything they put out, you know, just sort of from a distance saying like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think we're all on the same page. I also don't feel 
much personal connection to Nirvana. And I think that the, the myth of Nirvana, you know, like all musical myths do that it only really interferes with your connection to the music, you know, to see Kurt Cobain as some kind of underdog loser hero or, or icon of some kind, you know, it never really, that only serves to, to distance the music, I think from ordinary people. And, um, that's one reason why I, I don't have a, t- a real close personal relationship with Nirvana. Um, in utero is definitely the closest connection point to me, maybe followed by unplugged. I got to say through some mixture of hype and overexposure, I don't feel anything ever when I listen to Nevermind and I don't connect really with any of the songs on it. I, uh, in preparation for for this, I revisited um, parts of Bleach and and Nevermind and uh, in Utero all the way through, and I I I was surprised to find that like I actually think pretty much all of the singles are awesome. Like Smells Like Teen Spirit, maybe uh, one of the least of of these. Um, but e- like even come as you are which like generally when i think of come as you are i think of it as really boring um it's kind of it, it's not it's it's really uh a beautiful song and like even in bloom and lithium and like songs that i just don't think of off the top of my head when i think of nirvana i was just like whoa these songs rule like they still totally rule um and yeah i think that's part of what has uh, kind of reinvigorated um, my interest and excitement about them right now um, as we're, uh, you know, as I was preparing to to talk about them. Our podcast timeline starts with Kurt Cobain's death, which kind of suggests that Cobain's death is a turning point. Uh, what do you think that turning point is? I know the answer to this. <laughs> um, everybody gets more youthful. So, like, I looked at the chart, and um, there's kind of a shift that starts at the end of 93 and goes into 94. But, like, prior to that, there were a lot of old people on the uh, modern Mm. rock chart. Um, Sting, Peter Gabriel, Tears for Fears, like, these were the bands that were on the modern rock chart leading up to this time. There were a couple of, like, outliers, like uh, Jane's Addiction and, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers, where they were, like, sort of becoming popular. But for the most part, you know, there were also, like, remnants of, like, 80s alternative Uh bands like Depeche Mode and The Cure and New Mm -hmm. Order and XTC. Those bands were on the modern rock chart in 92 and 93, which seems way later than I would have ever expected. And everything after April 94, after Morrissey, um, you know, it starts to become these new sort of like hot commodities like Live and Bush and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the bands that we've kind of talked about. Hmm. Um, I've talked about this a couple times now, but I, I guess I would like to go into a little mini lecture <laughs> about what various kind of music commentators say about the influence of Nirvana. Um, For a lot of people, I think that the 
main significance when they think of Nirvana is that this is the moment of the crossover of the underground into the mainstream. And they're talking about 1991 in particular. They're talking about Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, getting into the top 40. Um, and the idea that underground music became more popular and then that people flocked to underground music. And I think that there's some evidence for that. There's also plenty of evidence against that. And uh, I want to take a second to share a couple of things from a couple different authors. Um, this might take a second, but... Uh, Chuck Klosterman wrote a book in 2005 called Killing Yourself to Live. And he makes, I think, an interesting point. And then I think our podcast has actually already at this point made an interesting counterpoint. Uh, Klosterman says, The life and death of Kurt Cobain has been, almost without rival, the most poorly remembered cultural event of my lifetime. What I seem to remember are the months just prior to Cobain's suicide. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only person who does. And what I remember were people attacking Cobain at every turn. Everybody had purchased in utero that fall, but not many people seemed to love it. The mainstream man-on-the-street consensus was that Pearl Jam's Versus was a little better. And side note, uh, kind of the same dynamic between Pearl Jam's 10 and Nirvana's Nevermind. Pearl Jam sold more copies, and had more longevity on the charts. Uh, back to Chuck Klosterman. This is the biggest thing pop historians revise when talking about Nirvana. They never seem willing to admit that by the spring of 1994, Pearl Jam was way more popular. It wasn't even that close. The week of its release, Versus sold over 900,000 copies, a seven-day record that seemed unbreakable at the time. Pearl Jam was seen as the people's band, Nirvana was seen as the band that hated its own people. Nirvana dropped off the schedule for Lollapalooza 94, and everyone blamed Kurt, except the insiders, who blamed his wife. Jokes were made when he almost killed himself in Rome. Kids were confused and insulted by his liner notes for Incesticide, where Kurt expressed annoyance over uncool people liking his songs. There was just this widespread sentiment that Kurt Cobain was a self-absorbed complainer, and that if he hated being famous, he should just disappear forever. So I feel like that's a helpful piece of information that kind of helps to dispel a little bit of the myth and a little bit of, um, I don't know, just grant some perspective on how Kurt's death reframed people's thinking about Nirvana and maybe the way that people make myths about Nirvana now. I think that's an opinion. Um, I think there was a time in my life where I could tolerate Klosterman's bullshit and now <laughs> is not that time. <laughs> I think I just like that just that that doesn't sit well with me at all. Like I he's such a contrarian at like every opportunity and you know wants to take the outsiders view on everything and that's and that's fine. Like I, I do think that there's some value in that, but I just like none of that rings true to me. I shouldn't say none of it, but it just seems like a hot take. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's curious to me um, to, to make the comparison between Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And I think that there are other comparisons that are maybe more valid to make, but um, you know, there's this idea that Pearl Jam was 
a bigger mainstream crossover. It's also interesting to keep in mind that Kurt Cobain kind of tried to slander uh, Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam at various points in the press to try to say that they were corporate grunge or to sort of question their motives when Pearl Jam was achieving a little bit more mainstream chart success. Um, But a couple of people have also suggested that if we're looking at a measure of alternative bands that broke through, you know, U2 is a pretty strong example of that quite a while before. And I think that in our podcast, we've realized that the influence of, you know, as we consider whether bands are Nirvana wannabes, I think if we were to take a tally, we found our bands that are actually strongly influenced by REM on the charts than bands that are strongly influenced by Nirvana. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was Pearl Jam. Like, I think Kurt probably had an argument with 10 that it was this big sort of corporate arena rock record. But starting with verses, like, it, I don't know. It seems like a different band to me. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, everybody. Y- you've got all this time to make your first record, but you have a much shorter amount of time to make your second record and things that come after that. Um, I thought they got a lot more interesting around verses. The Ticketmaster stuff happened around verses. And I wonder how much Kurt's comments had to do with something like that, you know, where they stopped being so mainstream and stopped making videos and things like that. Um, I don't necessarily have a ton of affection for Pearl Jam's music, but I'll love them forever for taking on Ticketmaster. Yeah. Yeah. There's a run. I mean, that run from verses to no code, that three album run for me is just, just wonderful. I would prefer, I prefer verses to in utero and not, I, I don't prefer 10 to nevermind. Mm-hmm. And the Nirvana unplugged is infinitely better than the Pearl Jam unplugged, but um, I don't There's think they Pearl necessarily Jam have to. Unplugged? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they necessarily have to be compared. I know that, you know, it, they're always kind of compared, but like, they're so Pearl different. Jam, Pearl Jam has really handled themselves well, um, especially all these years later. I think they've they've really done a good job of like sort of acquitting themselves to what Kurt accused them mm-hmm. of. Well, um, to add to our REM theory, Quillen mentioned that about a girl as Beatlesy, and I think that it's Beatlesy. And I, I found in my research that Butch Vig also found that this song was very Beatlesy. It's. It's specifically like pre psych Beatles, Beatlesy, right? Like early, early career Beatles. I literally read that he it was written after Kurt spent an afternoon listening to Meet the Beatles. Huh? To Meet the Beatles, I'm surprised. Interesting. I would think sixty four, sixty five, John Lennon specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, that that sounds right. I didn't mean to cut. Yeah. You off no, the, no, uh, no. 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 I'm talking and talking and talking. Um. Kurt Cobain described this as, quote, a jangly REM type of song. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I think that's fair. Um, I, I think that some of the mystery of the song that makes it so wonderful for me, and I don't know if I'm just not, if there's like uh, some kind of blind spot in my hearing, I could probably figure out a better phrase for that, but like the chords, um, I looked I looked at the chords on the internet and Wikipedia said that 
he's playing an E minor to a G. And to me, that sounds like an E major. And I think that there's just some like vague sort of sound about or like whether that's a major or a minor chord that he's like starting off with uh-huh. and bouncing back and forth between that. Um, I feel like that's kind of where the magic of the song is. I, I suspect he's just playing power chords. I don't think there are any thirds in those chords. I thought they were open, but yeah, that may be the case also. Hey, uh, I also thought that they were open chords. Yeah, podcast audience, do you think that he's including thirds in those chords? Or <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's just one and five, but I, I guess the implication is because there's so much consistency between the two chords, I, I would assume that it is an E minor, mm. personally. But I also like the notes he sings in the melody complicate that as well, right? I don't know. Listeners write in and say what you think uh, is this uh, Mixolydian or. uh... (laughs) One other thing about the crossover of the underground into the mainstream. I mean, we talked a little bit about Nirvana, Pearl Jam, U2, R.E.M. You know, sometimes I, I question the validity of this story, but I was thinking this week. Almost 20 years ago, I went to see Phil Alvram play a show in Grand Rapids, and he did a little question and answer segment, which I always think is cool when, when uh, an artist is on stage and they do a question and answer segment. And someone asked, basically, just like when you decided to play music. And Phil Alvram, who is you know behind these two projects, Microphones and Mount Erie, that I would think of as very arty and very uh, homemade and um, idiosyncratic, his mo- he, like no question, he immediately said the moment when I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on the radio. And I can't go back in time and, and feel what he felt, but I do, I am struck by that anecdote that it really felt like a bolt of lightning to sort of like independent minded people that you can, if you are, um, you know, you don't subscribe to the sort of like adrenaline of hair metal, or you don't subscribe to the notion of masculinity that's in hair metal that I do, I do think that there were a lot of people for whom hearing smells like teen spirit was like suddenly this jolt of inspiration of like, Oh, people like me can make rock music. And I just kind of have to take someone like Phil Alvarez at their word and understand, okay, Nirvana felt like that to people. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's an interesting point. I, um, it sort of reminds me that, you know, around the time when I, the first time I got a guitar, I was like going back to Nirvana Unplugged. I had an acoustic guitar because an electric guitar seemed too abrasive for our household. But, um, you know, that's all I had to work with. And it was like, what's the reference point I can kind of go to with an acoustic guitar? And it was always like, oh, well, you know, as a kid too, I was like, man, I could play these Nirvana songs that didn't make it on to unplug the hits, you know, that they should have played, which, you know didn't know what I was talking about at the time, but, um, you know, you're like, Oh man, maybe I could play lithium unplugged. That would be cool. For sure. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I did feel like inspired by, by the unplugged album specifically. Um, 
and I don't, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the same thing as like being inspired to play like music based on that, but yeah. Um, we've talked about pretty much everything except the song itself. Any thoughts about what the song might be about? A girl. I think that's logical. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, isn't that literally it? Like, I don't think there's much, uh, uh, much intrigue to it. It's like, he literally, like, I think his, his girlfriend at the time said like, Hey, how come you never wrote a song about me? And he was like, okay, I'll write a song about you. Yeah, that's my understanding. Um, Okay, so I actually just recently watched um, Montage of Heck. I had not seen it until maybe like a month or two ago. Hey, Al, real quick, is it worth, I I would be interested in rewatching it. What did you, did you like it? Yeah, I thought think? it was really interesting. You know, it's it's a little bit impressionistic. It's not mm-hmm. trying to fill you in on all the details. It's, um, in that way, it's a refreshing change. It's sort of like impressionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that it's not like Dave Grohl in his studio with guitars <laughs> hanging on the walls talking about whatever, which is like yes. pretty much every rock documentary of the last yes. 10 years is Dave Grohl. Yes. 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 No, no more of that. We need no more of that. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, it's definitely a cool thing. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. And it's just as illuminating if you're a Kurt Cobain fan as if you're a Courtney Love fan. Which, and I'm mm-hmm. arguably at least equal parts a Courtney Love fan and a Kurt Cobain fan, mm-hmm. which we'll have to wait until 1997 to get into. Oh. 98, I would guess. 98, maybe. Dalpart should have been... A part of this. For sure, but, yeah. Celebrity yeah. Skin is the only whole number one that we'll be yeah. talking about. So Tracy Miranda was Kurt Cobain's girlfriend at the time. She wanted Kurt to get a job or do some chores and also wondered why he hadn't written a song about her. And my reaction to that is definitely... Partially, it reminds me that 27 is really young. That's a really mm-hmm. young age mm-hmm. to die, and I was probably really immature when I was 27. I feel like reaching back in time and shaking Kurt Cobain and saying, like, just do some dishes, dude. <laughs> dude, I've been doing dishes since I was, like, 12. Do some dishes, like- <laughs> fold some laundry, clean up your shit. Jesus. Like yeah. the fact that you're a musical genius does not exempt you from doing some basic chores around the house. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there are a lot of things that, that would lead one to believe when reading about Kurt, that he was not that cool of a guy. Um, I think he was maybe a good friend, um, especially to in this relationship based on what I've read. I, I read a book called heavier than heaven um, about Kurt Cobain that was, and it was several, several years ago at this point, but, um, I remember really liking it and it was just a very honest look at him. And, um, he seemed like, yeah, scummy deadbeat boyfriend to Tracy Miranda, who was like this kind of like, not necessarily ambitious person, but somebody who had their shit together, you know, and was like, had a job and was like supporting the both of them while he just kind of like laid around and like 
wrote songs yeah. and made dolls and, and and things when he felt like it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, that's not, I, I don't want to, you know, also be too hard on him because I think that like he did have friends that like had really great things to say about him mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. also his public persona is like maybe not that great sometimes. And we'll get into that when it gets to like, you know, some of the banter in the Unplugged album um, where he's a little insufferable um Mm. but uh yeah i yeah he's he's kind of a you know he's all over the place when it comes to that that's what i think i think montage of hack portrays him that way too like it's i don't think it's a pretty picture of, of him you know yeah i wrote down phantom thread dynamic i don't know if either of you saw that movie but it's you know like very self involved creative moody moody creative genius man who is using his creativity as sort of an excuse to act in very entitled ways towards Mm -hmm. particularly the women around him Mm -hmm. and i i suspect that some of that was going on also kurt never told her this song was about her Hmm. like what a shitty thing to do like he made this amazing song like he could have at least been like hey i I made this for you he didn't (laughs) even do that come on man well, my feelings are that we 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 don't really need to talk kind of music video because we may as well just combine our discussion of the album and the the whole TV special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, how do you feel about the the album and the TV special as a whole? It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's sweet as hell. Uh... Yeah, I I appreciate the the ballsiness of uh shying away from most of your hits. Uh playing cover like so many covers. Half of it is covers. Um uh I had weird choices for covers that I I feel I I feel a little bit bad for the meat puppets. I don't know. I just think that dynamic is really really strange um to like patronize them and have them come up and sing songs of theirs. Listeners can't see this, but Travis uh, is visibly taken aback by what (laughs) Quillen is saying. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I I think it's weird. I think that is totally a weird move. Hey, we're going to cover your songs to like, uh, because we're popular and to draw attention to you, and we're gonna ask you to come sing these and songs. And we're with only us. gonna play I, songs a... that are a decade old, even as you yeah, continue it's... to make to top yourselves and grow as musicians. Yes, it, it's that's a really strange move. Um, but uh, but so much cool stuff. Uh, the man who sold the world cover is, I think, incredible. Um, just versions of various non-singles that i love like dumb mm-hmm. and uh on a plane mm-hmm. and um uh po- even like polly is awesome um yeah i don't know i i just I, I was pleasantly surprised by how um just like overwhelmed i felt listening to this and just loving pretty much every every minute of it i don't even know where to start um I think this is the best thing they ever did. It's so wonderful. Um, Everything about it. It's just, I mean, they like redefined the entire like unplugged like format. Um, The fact that they spent, they did six covers and it was such a generous move for Kurt to do this maybe on his way out. You know, he'd already, I think he 
probably like there was a situation in Rome where he tried to take his life and you know, he wasn't doing well. Mm. And for him to, um, to like every song that he covered, he mentioned who sang it. He mentioned where it came from. He was, he was, it was a very generous thing. And I, I thought that like, yeah, I, I, the, the meat puppets thing, that's a, that's a, I'll hold on to that because that's another discussion. But, um, I just thought it was, it, it was so wonderful, the vibe of it. And the fact that it was like, it was an unplugged show, but like that guitar was yeah. not like an unplugged guitar. No, like it was through an amp. Yeah, there's chorus, sure. there's distortion. Yeah, that was such a wild yeah. sound, and it hasn't really yeah. been replicated. I looked into that a little bit. They were hiding the amp, uh, like they put a box over it or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. His, his Fender amp. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and it it was a it, like a it was a 1958 guitar that Martin had made with two pickups on it. And, um, it was, there were only 300 ever made and, um, yeah, it it was just like a literal acoustic electric guitar. Um, because I was like, how, how do you have distortion come through that? That sounds so good. You know, Mm -hmm. like on, Mm -hmm. on man who sold the world, like it sounds great and nothing ever sounds like that since. Um, I thought of it as very like a, a like a folk style performance. Like I'm not a folk guy. I don't know a lot about that. But I remember I went on a run recently and listened to this album and it just seemed like a very like like you know there's there's a, a smaller crowd and just the storytelling kind of aspect, the casual sort of like element of it. Um man, it just it's so great. I got to say I love the whole album, but I especially love the covers. And, I, you know, when I was making my notes, I felt like it was worth taking a moment to mention every single one. Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam, Man Who Sold the World, Plateau, Lake of Fire, Oh Me, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And I feel like, um, you know, there's a big Meat Puppets focus here, but throughout uh, Nirvana's career, there's been this big Vaseline's focus. So we've got Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam here, but of course on Assesticide, you can hear their covers of Molly's Lips and Son of a Gun, which are also two of my favorite Nirvana recordings. Molly's Lips is awesome. I like their uh, cover more than the original version. Yeah, I, I I hate to say that Nirvana has covered va- the Vaseline's three best songs, and the Vaseline's fourth best song is pretty far behind these three mm-hmm. best songs. I really like Rory Rides Me Raw. Yeah, that's good. That's, a, that's high good. up for me. Um, of those six songs, personally, I think that Nirvana, the Nirvana version, um, is better than than four of them. Yeah, I think the Nirvana version is better than Man Who Sold the World. Agreed. Jesus doesn't want me for a sunbeam. Uh huh. Um, Where did you sleep last night? And Lake of Fire. Um, but not Oh Me or Plateau. The Meat Puppets versions of those songs are are better. Um, Lake of Fire version by the Meat Puppets. Um, the original version sounds like it's being sung by Brack from Space Ghost. Um, (laughs) but also I thought it was really interesting. You know, you mentioned like, why was Nirvana not uh, at the top of the charts after Kurt Cobain died? Um, they re-recorded Lake of Fire 
the Meat Puppets re-recorded it for um, Too High to Die. And it right. was tagged on at the end. Right. Which is kind of a weird... I'm sure like the, the label forced him to do that. Mm-hmm. Because it is a, like, a really great song. Lyrically, like, man, Lake of Fire and Plateau, like the lyrics to those songs are incredible. Were Meat Puppets on a major label? Oh, I'm sure. I think they were on Geffen, too. I, I might be wrong about that off the top of my head. I'll, I'll look it up. I, I really was not familiar with Meat Puppets. I mean, I could think of uh, like Backwater, you know, the the single from that album you just mentioned that I think it was on that 1994 album. Um, Too High to Die? Yeah, Too High to Die. But I had Good never album, listened title. back. And I got to say, I didn't yeah. listen to that. Um, Kurt Cobain, you know, specifically says in the special, these are mostly from Meat Puppet's second album. They're, all, they're actually all from Meat Puppet's second album. I had never listened to it before. I didn't listen to it all the way through. But I really, really liked listening back to the original versions. I was really impressed by the character the I really was charmed by them and I actually kind of felt this vibe this kind of amateurish underground vibe that I haven't felt since I feel like the first time that I went back and listened to like pavements earlier lesser known things like the watery domestic EP where there's just so much personality and I actually I made a note that um I liked the vocal performance on Lake of Fire actually better than what Kurt Cobain did. I don't totally remember what uh, it's wild, strong, bad, or whatever sounds like. But <laughs> uh, good, good, good mix-up. That's a good mix-up there. <laughs> the um, '94 Lake of Fire is like kind of slick and bluesy. Yeah. And um, it's not in keeping with the 80s Meat Puppets spirit that I, I felt so charmed by. Yeah, I, I've really um, come to appreciate um, that second Meat Puppets album. I think it's awesome. Um, apparently, yeah, so they were on tour together. And it, it, does, it looks like the album was on London Records, um, Too High to Die, just from a quick Google search there. But... Um, they were on tour together and they thought, you know, Kurt thought, hey, uh, these songs would sound good acoustic. And he was right. Um, but I thought like. I thought it was a really cool way to include like it was kind of like I don't want to say passing the torch, but something along those lines. I thought it was. Yeah. Like I said earlier, like it was a generous thing to do to be like you have all the spotlight on you. You're the biggest band in the world and you bring this unknown band because MTV thought they were going to bring in Eddie Vedder to sing in songs, to sing songs on, uh, on unplugged. And, um, you know, when they found out it was the meat puppets, they're like, nobody cares about the meat puppets. No, you know, that's not going to do anything, but it was such a great move. And I did pick up a couple of like Kurt Kirkwood quotes from about this performance he's one of one of the members of the meat puppets and it was just so sweet everything he said about it he said i never looked down my nose at them at the same time i never really had any goals or motivations towards you know i was thinking uh he he said i think this will be beautiful kurt's voice is great i love nirvana when i get to talk about it it's like looking back through a fairy tale photo album it's one of my favorite moments and it's easy to see why it was a blast and i love those guys it was like, what a wonderful, like, 
wonderful vibe from them and they've you know they're still making music and um consistently like last year yeah they're like really um and distinctive you know that whole like southern fried psychedelic sort of like uh country tinged Mm -hmm. um indie rock is awesome yeah the songwriting is just brilliant on those three songs lake of fire plateau and oh me uh can i interject just to preemptively uh offer an apology uh, okay. For using the phrase ballsiness to uh, describe and define like uh, uh, bravery or, or boldness, as if that's the term, uh, the be all end all term to to describe that. I, I see. You you are equating masculinity I, with uh, with courage. I yes, and I regret that uh, that phrasing. So I want to apologize. I think the internet will accept your apology. <laughs> Thank you. Now, whether the internet will accept Travis's apology for getting details wrong about the Little Nicky soundtrack, I'm not. I'm less sure of that. <laughs> it was Mr. Deeds, and Dave knows what he did. Okay, well, um, Quillen, you had suggested that we do a little Nirvana top five songs. Hell yeah. You want to get us started with a number five? Sure. Uh, yeah, my, uh, my number five, <laughs> my number five favorite Nirvana song is about a girl. My number five <laughs> Nirvana song is about a girl. <laughs> <laughs> My number five Nirvana song is about a girl. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. We're okay. awesome. All right. Well, it was All very right. awesome. Uh, Quillen, number four. Uh, my number four is Drain You from Nevermind. Okay. Great drumming. Catchy as hell melody. My number four is On a Plane. Okay. That was on the fence for me at number five. All right. My number four is All Apologies. <laughs> Um, but I will say, I think Drain You is probably my favorite song on Nevermind, Quill. Definitely. Same. Uh, my number three is Dumb from In Utero. Dumb is good. Great. It's beautiful. My number three is Heart Shaped Box, which I think is a, a perfect song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that wasn't funny. I was just looking at my list. I wrote number three and number six is the same song. Number three <laughs> is Sliver. Hmm. Okay, now remind me, <laughs> my early Nirvana is not always so strong. Is this the drop me off at Grandpa Joe's uh, song? Yeah, Grandma, Grandma Take Me Home. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, All number right, two? my number two is Sliver. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which one is that again? <laughs> <laughs> my number two is, in my opinion, the heaviest Nirvana song, Scentless Apprentice. Hmm. My number two is Dive, which I believe was the A-side for Sliver. Real cool song. Uh, what happens in that one? <laughs> uh, dive, 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 dive in me. Oh, man. I'm sure I'd recognize it if I heard it, but yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's awesome. All right. Number one, starting with the cue boy. My number one is All Apologies. It's, it's a good choice. My number one is Serve the Servants. <laughs> My number one is Dumb. Okay. Oh, I love Dumb. There's a fair Dude, amount of overlap. Dumb is 
Uh, uh, lyrically, uh, one of the most incredible songs. Well, ever. I'll take I'll take your word for that. But musically um, too. Man, the melody, uh, the melodies throughout the whole song. And I'm a sucker for what I've learned is that I'm a sucker for Nirvana songs that end on a repetitive, uh, like just repeating um, progression where Mm -hmm. Kurt is singing a line over and over and uh, with a harmony, with one harmony over it. Uh, All apologies, dumb, um, about a girl. All do that. Huh. And uh, I don't know. It's such a dumb move, but it's so good on those <laughs> songs. Um, and yeah, dumb is just like the cello is awesome. Yeah. Uh, everything about that song is just. Yeah, I like that one good. a lot too. Uh, did you notice the trends with my top three? Uh, all in utero. It's the first three tracks on in utero oh, and uh, in backwards order. <laughs> yep. I'm a I'm an in utero man. <laughs> yeah, baby. Let's take a look at the charts. Yeah. Uh, Interstate Love Song is still the number one song on the mainstream rock chart. And On Bended Knee by Boyz II Men is still the number one on the pop chart. Still great. Yeah. Yeah, both yes. good. Uh, anything about the modern rock chart? I, yeah, I was going to say um, I looked at the modern rock chart and uh, there are three songs from Vitalogy in 1994. Oh. Um, Better Man, Tremor Christ, and Corduroy. I was very surprised to see Tremor Christ. Tremor um, Christ was a single? Yeah, I didn't know that, right? I was kind of surprised. I can't even... Yeah, I couldn't even think of what that oh, song is. Oh, it's the is. fourth song. So, like, when I hear Vitalogy, I hear the first three songs as, like, like a, a bam, 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 sort of, like, incredible, like, opening to the album. And then Tremor Christ is sort of a breather, but it's cool. Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, Big fan of Corduroy and Better Man. Corduroy is the shit. Love Corduroy. Yeah. Corduroy is incredible. I don't necessarily need to hear Better Man again. Hmm. Agreed. Um, hmm. A single from an album that I've really been into a ton for the last six months, uh, Amorica by Black Crows. This single is A Conspiracy. Um, nah, I don't know. That one's for me. Hmm. I'll just move on. Um, Amy Mann has a song yeah. on the charts called That's Just What You Are. Amy Mann, wonderful, incredible, still doing the work. Uh-huh. Um, there's a Bad Religion song, uh, 21st Century Digital Boy, which I think is probably their biggest like mainstream kind of hit. Oh, yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know about Bad Religion. I don't really. I see care. you, Allison Chains, at number 40. Yeah, with from the Clerks got, soundtrack with "Got Me Wrong." Ooh. I I loved that song when I was. "Got a Me kid. Wrong" is awesome. Yeah. Um. What about uh, "Feel the Pain" by Dinosaur Jr.? Everybody loves that song, right? Yeah. Oh, it's good. Yeah, that song rules. Yeah. Yeah, that's on the charts. Too. Is it the only good song on that album? It might be. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, all Dinosaur Jr. songs. Yeah, a bad Dinosaur Jr. song is better than most songs. Um, that is true, but uh, I don't know. I was, uh, I, um, that album is. You're probably right. 
it's fine. But I get it's where you're coming from. Monotonous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, post post uh, classic and current lineup, uh, or in between. You know, um, I think. Uh, uh, is it without a sound? Is that the album? Um, yes. Uh, no, I think it's just Mascus, right? Like no, um, Lou Barlow or Murph. He is playing guitar and drums. I think there's a bassist. Right, but it's not Lou Barlow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I right. think Without a Sound might be the Dinosaur Jr. album I'm most familiar with. Hmm. I remember it being good. I, I haven't really done a lot of listening to Damascus and Company. And Al, there are in some way better life. ones, including their 2007 and 2009 Oh, albums. I do remember. Beyond, is that the, the album title? Uh, from 2007, yeah. And Farm. From okay. 2009. Yeah, I, I do remember those being pretty good. But I think I was still in a place where the guitar solos put me off. Sure, and I am sure. officially in a place where the guitar solos do not put me off anymore. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. Also I'm on the, the other side of my Aerosmith uh, obsession. Oh, sure. Now. Yeah. Uh, also, the drums always sound like shit on their albums. Huh. Um, other things that I thought worthy of note... Um, Smashing Pumpkins are definitely keeping the charts warm from Siamese Dream. They've got a landslide at number five. God, that still gets played on the radio sometimes. And Does it? Like, oh, I don't know. Really? Yeah. I mean, so I, was, cool I was intimately familiar with the Pumpkins version of that song before I ever knew who Fleetwood Mac were. Yeah. One of those perverse things about being young. What's the awesome song? What's the awesome song from... Uh, from um, Pisces Iscariot. Is oh, it I think there are quite bedazzled? a few. Frail and Bedazzled is quite yeah. good. Um, that should have been on the uh, Starla stuff. is fantastic. I think there's a song called I Saw a Doppelganger on that uh, <laughs> um, album. <laughs> I might want to fact check that, but it's possible. <laughs> there's not. Isn't there a story about him seeing a, about Billy Corgan seeing a doppelganger in the elevator or something like that? There was a lizard person? No, a doppelganger. Uh, a tulpa. Slash uh, <laughs> doppelganger kind of thing. I don't know. Huh. I don't know. Look it up. Look it up. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> the only other thing that I thought notable uh, about the charts was She Don't Use Jelly by the Flaming Lips appearing at number 34, yeah. which is that, do you think that that song is the most commercially successful or at least radio play wise um, Flaming Lips track? I know that I, Do You Realize is probably played at weddings more frequently than She Don't Use Jelly. But yeah, but only indie weddings. I don't know. I indie feel like weddings. those <laughs> those Yoshimi singles um, were no, pretty popular. She Don't Use Jelly is definitely their biggest song. Okay. Uh, or like most radio play, and I'm sure. I'm not. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the first track on that album, Turn that It album, On. That album's pretty good. Fight Test. And I'm, I'm a big oh. fan. No, <laughs> we're not uh, talking about Yoshimi anymore. No, Correct. no, no. And I'm a big fan of uh, psychiatric explorations of the fetus with needles. But beyond <laughs> that, I. No, you're not. You just wanted to say that. <laughs> no, that's a great song. Flaming Lips is a band that I I love to hate. I love to tell people when they say how great Flaming Lips are. I love to tell them how much I think Wayne Coyne is an asshole and that the music well, that's, is stupid. You're true. You're right on that, <laughs> Wayne Coyne. But uh, um, uh, Cloud Taste Metallic is awesome, though. That's a really good '90s album. Should we rate the song about a girl? Yeah, I uh, am going to give it. It's such a good song. 
that I'm going to give it, I think, my highest rating yet. And I think that rating is a 4.5 out of 5 worlds that have been sold by a man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to say, I was secretly hoping that this would be our first Hall of Famer. I was hoping this would be fives all around. Oh, uh, that's it okay. Can, it's okay. It can still be a Hall of Famer. We, I think we've yeah, got one. We've got one uh, coming up in 1995 that I also have high hopes hey, for, but listen it might out. be unrealistic. I think if it gets a overall rating of uh, four or up that can be a hall of fame okay yeah all right well obviously at the end of 1994 we'll certainly do a ranking i'm gonna go ahead and give this my i think my first perfect five i'm gonna give this five out of five girls (laughs) (laughs) there were so many things i wanted to say about about uh nirvana unplugged (laughs) And um, maybe I'll have to have a spinoff podcast uh, about just this by myself, talking into a microphone about it. One of the things I really like watching Kurt Cobain play guitar. It's Mm -hmm. awkward. He's left handed. Mm -hmm. He places his fingers a little differently. Like he's when he plays a D, he plays it with his first and second finger. Um, The angle of his wrist seems funny and it looks like Mm -hmm. he's opening his hand and like grabbing the neck of his guitar in between every chord. Um, There's like a rhythm to it. And it's just, I just really like watching that. There were so Mm -hmm. many little things. I loved watching uh, Chris uh, Novoselic, just everything about him. He was like very bouncy and fun. Um, Does he only play with like, uh, does he only place his fingers on the fretboard? Like only his one like index and middle finger like he doesn't use his whole hand i feel like kurt uh novoselic oh i'm not sure that's a good question i i didn't really look as closely Wh- at which as... i know our friend uh and bandmate mac has issues with he oh he hates um like seeing bassists who only use like one or two fingers to play the notes wow. um versus spreading out and using all you know, all it's curious comparing him with someone like Mike Durnt, who I've spoken highly of on this podcast. Chris Novoselic, I, I don't. When I think of Nirvana, I don't think of any fills on the bass. Mm. I can't mm. think of really very many moments whatsoever when Chris Novoselic draws attention to his own bass playing. I think there are great fills on "About a Girl" and uh, "Man Who Sold the World" mm-hmm. on this. Uh, um uh, sir anyways c- continue no continue, no that's Travis. great um i mean he just like his presence is so fun and upbeat yeah and then yeah. you've got pat smear from the germs sitting in with the band who just like lends from the foo this, fighters uh well he just <laughs> lends this this uh level of cool to the whole thing and dave Grohl's there too and um <laughs> uh, i will say and, dave Grohl. dave Grohl is modeling my quarantine hairstyles uh, <laughs> I need a haircut, and uh, in the meantime, I'm resorting to uh, Dave Grohl unplugged. It is actually this is the closest thing you'll ever hear me to say about a nice thing uh, about Dave Grohl. The, his best performance, um, just very quiet brushes, hot rods. Okay, turtleneck. I'll tolerate. Oh, it. You turtleneck. Know, it's with, it's his best work. <laughs> with me putting Scentless Apprentice at number two, uh, I I'll just step in and defend Dave Grohl and say that guy can really 
really lay down some like brutal force on the drums when the occasion calls for it. Save it for your Grohl Talk podcast. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. He stinks. Um, uh, my podcast Kurt- all about Dave's. It's going to be a mix of Dave Matthews and Foo Fighters. <laughs> I'll, I'll just call it, these are the Dave's I know. Yes, oh, that's right, right, yes. Oh, I want to be um, on that podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, but Kurt also, one of the things, one of the sneaky things I noticed was that he's playing in like this office, like computer chair, like a swivel mm, chair. I yes, noticed that too. Yep. Yeah, I, I noticed that. That was really kind of neat. All um, right, Trevor, are you going to rate this goddamn I'll rate it. 4.25 computer chairs. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Tell Me All Your Thoughts on Pod is now part of the off-shelf family of music media outlets. You should sign up for their email list where you'll receive their monthly zine. That's at offshelf.net. And you should subscribe to our sibling podcast, Best Song Ever. You can email us about upcoming songs at Thoughts hey, hold on Pod. On. Yeah, hold yeah on. What, what? What? Oh, yeah. Guys. Do we think this is a Nirvana wannabe? Oh, shit. (laughs) Good call. You you had something else you wanted to say, too. Oh, no. I just wanted to joke about this being a Nirvana wannabe. (laughs) You got to at least draw draw people's attention to where they need to go on YouTube to watch. um, Oh, uh, yeah. If you you haven't seen uh, the YouTube video of uh, Puddle of Mud covering this song, uh, about a girl by Nirvana. Um, Please do. It's a treat. It's a treat. It is. It's like they meant to transcribe it down a whole step and they they forgot, <laughs> and it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah, it's worth watching. Uh, this is not a Nirvana wannabe. This is a Beatles wannabe. Yeah, I'm. I'm just gonna add to the the theory that I I think that we've all been talking about which is that uh, let's not underestimate the influence of REM actually as perhaps the most influential force on alternative radio during this time about a girl by Nirvana is a Nirvana wannabe (laughs) (laughs) you can email us about upcoming songs at thoughtsonpod at gmail.com Email us a question, and we'll discuss it at our earliest convenience, or send us comments, memories, corrections, and complaints. If you send comments as a voice memo, we'd love to include them at the end of the show. Listen along with the playlist on Spotify, Apple Music, or watch along on YouTube. Next week, uh, we'll be talking about... um, Hang on, I I forget what song we're talking about. Let me ask our producer... Jim Bang and Blame. Uh, hey, <laughs> Jim Bang and Blame. Do you have Do you have our notes for next week? I seem to have replaced. I seem to have misplaced my notes for next week. Okay. Hey, All right. Okay. Uh, Jim Bang and Blame. Okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, we'll be talking about another <laughs> single from uh, REM's second album, Monster Bang and Blame. Once again, by REM. Okay, bye. Bye, Ariam. <laughs> <laughs> bye. <laughs>